Shall we pray? Our Father, we would ask that you would give us understanding into your word, how to apply it particularly to this subject. So many things in scripture we learn and file away, waiting for that day when it's appropriate, that we might have recall, that we might have already thought through these issues and know what the scripture teaches. And so we would ask for help and understanding, help us to see even the applications to our own heart tonight. Thank you for the Church of Jesus Christ. Thank you that she is going out into all the nations. And we wait for that day when our Savior will return. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We ask your blessing upon this, your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to open in your bulletins to the outline on the Westminster Confession, chapter 23, as we're going through the the confession, we've come to this section on the, the civil magistrate. I was asked how long we've been at this series. I think it's over 10 years. I'll have to look at the exact date. But it's... And then let's also open God's word, Romans chapter 13. We will be reading the first seven verses. Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. The subject of the civil authority is prominent in all the Reformed confessions, so it is somewhat curious why it's not dealt with in the larger and shorter catechisms. That would have been helpful. From a historical perspective, it's really a fascinating chapter because the British original Westminster Confession is very different than the American Presbyterian Confession, especially in Section 3. They're very different. Our confession is rewritten from the British Confession. In our day, when the culture and the government is much post-Christian culture and even hostile to Christianity, this is a very helpful chapter to know, to direct us what is our role in both of these kingdoms, the church and the state. Last time we looked at section one, that God establishes all civil authority. We can say that generally, that government is God's idea, it's his design and that more specifically, each ruler is there by his appointment and his sovereignty. Quickly, 
hurrying to say that just because each ruler is his design and his appointment does not mean that he approves of each one. That God establishes all authority does not mean he approves of their character, does not approve of their actions or their decisions, but each one is in office by God's plan and God's purpose, which may be for judgment. Tonight, we'd like to look at the rest of the chapter. Section two is that civil office is legitimate for Christians. Section three, civil offices is limited by God. And four, civil offices to be honored by Christians. Section uh, two then, civil office is legitimate for Christians. It's lawful for Christians to hold public office when called to it. In such office, they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. For that purpose, they may now, under the New Testament, lawfully wage war upon just and necessary occasion. As an aside, you see here that civil rulers are authorized to wage war. Westminster Confession, the Reformed Church, does not hold to a pacifist position. There is a time for a just and necessary war. So the legitimacy of public office for Christians, it is legitimate because God is the source of civil government. Romans 13.2, a better translation as the New American has it is, if you resist authority, you oppose God's ordinance or design or institution. It's his idea. We saw last time, when was civil government begun? It was begun at the covenant with Noah in Genesis 9.6. After the flood, God established human government as necessary to curb evil. The scripture records, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Here in germ form, later developed in scripture, later developed in history, God establishes human government to curb the evil of the human heart. He applies this to all humanity, all cultures, all time, just as much as the rainbow is a sign to the whole world, not just for Noah and his family. Augustine said that the human government was a necessary evil, made necessary because of evil. People need to be protected by the civil authorities who are instituted by God to protect people from the effects of sin. There's a legitimacy then for public office because God's the source of civil government. There's a legitimacy of public office for the Christian because God is the judge over civil government. You see it in Romans 13, 4 again. The ruler is God's. The emphasis in the Greek is he's God's, whether he knows it or not, whether he acknowledges it or not, he's God's. And what is he? Verse 4, he's God's servant. It's the word for table service. Very lowly, very humble service. And no more. He is God's servant. All government derives its authority from God, is responsible to God, is accountable to God. No government, therefore, is autonomous from God. You cannot separate state and God. They will give an account to God. So we recognize two spheres of government, state and church, and both are accountable to God. As says in Matthew twenty-two seventeen, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God's what is God's. We recognize the illegitimate authority of the state under God. So Luther referred to these two spheres of government as if they were the right and left hand of God. Civil government is the government on God's left hand. The church government and her government is the government 
on God's right hand. And the state is not above the church, as in uh, the Middle Ages and Roman Catholicism, and the, and the state is not above the church, as in Anglicanism, the state churches. Neither the church is above the state or the state is above the church. They are two equal spheres, both accountable to God. And because God is both the source and the judge of civil government, that makes it legitimate for Christians to serve in civil government. It's a high calling. When somebody enters into public civil service, they are really entering the ministry in the parallel sense as someone who is ordained into the ministry of the church, ministry of the word as an elder or deacon. In a parallel way, they're both entering into an office for which they will give an account to God. Not all have seen the civil service as being an honorable calling. The Anabaptists of the 16th century quote, the kingdom of the civil magistrate is absolutely useless. End of quote, Mennonites would not allow into their churches and even a professing Christian who was a civil ruler. They would not allow their members to perform the function of a magistrate. They would not allow their members to serve in the military. But the Reformed Church sees in Scripture that civil office is legitimate for Christians. Section 3 then addresses that the civil office, though, is limited by God. This section gave enormous concern to the American Presbyterians. It's almost completely rewritten in our copy of the Confessions. The opening two statements in the British Confession and the American Confession are the same. Civil authorities may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which is church discipline. And then the American Confession adds, nor should they interfere in any way in matters of faith. The rest of section three was rewritten in 1788 by the Philadelphia Assembly of the American Presbyterian Church using and quote, articulating themes and phrases which would be echoed at the first United States Congress and in the American Bill of Rights, end of quote. Historically, section three of our confession uh, was very historical um, in the forming of the Bill of Rights in the United States of America. Some comments on the opposition to this section on what the American Presbyterian Church removed from the original confession and what the American Presbyterian Church added to the original confession. First of all, what they removed from the original Westminster Confession. The, the original British section three read like this, the, of the civil ruler. He has authority and it is his duty to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed for the better effecting whereof he has power to call synods to be present at them and to provide that whatsoever is transacted in them be according to the mind of God. You can imagine Presbyterians in America oppose those ideas 
that he has authority and it's his duty to take order in the church? No. Or that the state would determine what is correct doctrine, what is a cult, that the state would establish church theology and church discipline? No. Well, even though the section began with civil authorities may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, yet it goes on and it sure sounds like they do. And the American Presbyterian Church, we believe biblically, was very uncomfortable with this. There's no authority in the scripture for saying such a thing. So they removed the authority of the state to come into the church and to interfere with theology and church discipline and church order. And they also removed the wording that the state has authority to call church synods. The state cannot call a general assembly. The state cannot. There's a long history. There's even a tension regarding this authority between the church and the state. Who was the first one to call for a church council? Who was the first civil ruler to call for a church council? Emperor Constantine, and he called for the Council of Nicaea in 325. The irony is that the English parliament had called for the Westminster divines to write this confession. But we in America believe that the state has no authority to call church presbyteries or general assemblies or synods and those all those references were removed from the original Westminster Confession. And then they had some concerns that were added in to there was three. The first is you see it in section three that the state protect the church. Section three, yet as caring fathers, it is the duty of civil authorities to protect the church. As Chad Van Dixorn says, quote, this is an idea that's not incompatible with the Bible. It is not, as far as I can see, an idea from the Bible. There's no biblical reference here. But this statement then is flushed out in the next two, that the state give freedom for the church to be the church. The civil authority is limited to making it possible for the church to be the church in that society. The civil government cannot interfere. It is not to rule in the church, but is to facilitate the church being the church. And then you notice number three, what they add is that the state must give freedom for all Christian churches in America. This, this was huge. Look at section three as it was written in Philadelphia. Yet as caring fathers, it is the duty of civil authorities to protect the church of our common Lord without giving preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest, doing so in such a way that all church authorities shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of carrying out every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. As Jesus Christ has appointed a regular government and discipline in his church, no law of any commonwealth should interfere with, prevent, or hinder their proper exercise among the voluntary members of any denomination of Christians according to their own profession and belief. 
It is the duty of civil authorities to protect the person and good name of all their people in such an effective manner that no person be allowed, either in the name of religion or of unbelief, to offer any indignity, violence, abuse, or injury to any other person, whatever. They should also take care that all religions and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without interference or disturbance. This saying that the government, the state, the civil government cannot establish a particular church for America. It cannot give any particular denomination favored status, as was done in some of the colonies. In Virginia, the established church was the Anglican church. In Massachusetts and Connecticut, the established church was the congregational. But in the United States, in the colonies, Later in the United States of America, no particular church was to be established and given favored status. Remember the context in which they're writing. The context in which they're writing, there are only Christian churches. The state of Maryland was Roman Catholic, but the rest were Protestant churches. Presbyterian, Reformed, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Congregational, Baptist, Quakers, Mennonites, and other Anabaptists. And that's what the confession is addressing, that the state is to give freedom to all these Christian denominations because they weren't yet to address the 19th century when the cults came in. They weren't to address the years to come of all the immigration. And so Islam and other religions came to this country. It was written at that context at that time to protect the church of our common Lord without giving preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest of any denomination of Christians. But by calling the state to protect all religious freedom, this principle was later applied in the U.S. Bill of Rights to all religions. It is the duty of civil authorities to protect the person and good name of all of their people in such an effective manner that no person be allowed, either in the name of religion or of unbelief, to offer any indignity, etc. That the church, all the churches, must be protected, the right of freedom of religion. Civil office is legitimate for Christians. Civil office is limited by God. And then third, the section four, that civil office is to be honored by Christians. Section four, it is the duty of people to pray for those in authority, to honor them, to pay them taxes or other revenue, to obey their lawful commands, and to be subject to their authority for the sake of conscience. Neither unbelief nor difference in religion makes void the just and legal authority of office holders, nor frees the people, church authorities included, from their due obedience to them. Much less does the Pope have any power or jurisdiction over civil authorities in their domains or over any of their people, nor can he deprive them of their domains or lives if he shall judge them to be heretics or on any other pretense, whatever. Here we have the qualifications, the limitations on Christian duties to civil leaders and the description of Christian duties to our leaders, and then what will the result be if Christians are following through on their duties to civil leaders? First, we have the qualifications on Christian duties to civil leaders. If a ruler is not a Christian, that's not a reason not to submit 
to him or to her. That's unsound reasoning because the, the reason that we submit to the civil authorities that God has established is not to obey them, but to obey God who sovereignly has put them into office. And so we obey the authorities over us, but by that action, we're ultimately obeying God. First Peter 2.13, written by Peter in Rome, writing of Emperor Nero, who would later put him to death. Peter writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So we obey the authorities that God has sovereignly placed over us. That's a qualification. The other qualification they have in here is the reference that the Roman Catholic Pope has no business, no authority over the civil government. It's referring back to what those two spheres, and it's saying that the Roman Catholic Church is not the church over the state. And by implication, neither is the state over the church. These two spheres do not preempt each other. We don't have the Roman Catholic view that the church is over the state, that the state is subordinate to the church. Again, in the context of writing the Westminster Confession in the 17th century, the Pope was involved in civil politics. He was claiming authority over civil rulers. Popes claimed divine rights over kings and their lands. They claimed to have power to dispose kings, to excommunicate them on the ground of heresy or schism. They absolved citizens of obedience to their rulers. No, the church is not over the state. The state is not over the church. And neither do we have the Rastian view or the state over the church, the view of Scotland. Even though it was a Presbyterian church, it was a state church. Many Puritans had the idea of a state church. Remember the beginning of, since the very beginning, uh, over a thousand years, the church has only known one model of a state church. That's all they've known. So when the Protestant Reformation comes and is beginning to challenge the separation of church and state as separate spheres, that there should not be a state church, this was new. And in, the, in our confession, the American Presbyterians clearly defined that this break has happened. Rather, the church and the state are independent, and interdependent, two separate kingdoms that God has established on his right hand and his left hand, both under the sovereignty of God, both accountable to God, and each having their own sphere under God. Boy, is that difficult to keep balanced. And every generation is going to have these challenges to keep that balanced and to keep them separate. It's not easy. The balance sometimes gets unbalanced too much authority in the state interfering with the church. The believer is a citizen in both the state and the church, and and we see sometimes where the state has overreached. The state, the civil government, protects the church, but it's not to interfere with church worship or sacraments or government. This is one reason why we don't have an American flag flying in here. When we gather as God's people 
to worship our King, the Lord Jesus. This is his embassy. And all citizens of all nations are welcome here to worship the King, the Lord Jesus. There's no flag of one country flying in display where Christ is worshipped. This is one reason why churches and sessions really wrestled how far to abide by government policies for COVID. Is the state crossing a line interfering with church government and worship? For example, when the state of California told churches that they couldn't sing and worship, but the Bible commands us to sing, they crossed the line. Very difficult questions, but that's the issue. There's two separate spheres and you each stay separate The church is to be the church. The state is the state. The state, the civil government, protects the church, but it's not to interfere with church worship or sacraments or government. It also goes the other way. The church honors and prays for the good of civil government, but the church as a church must not interfere with the government and political issues. That's one reason why our session would never have a political candidate come and address the church in a Sunday service or any other church-sanctioned meeting as Jerry Falwell and many evangelicals have done. This is why our church would never post election signs on its property who to vote for or to have voting information in the church bulletins or to pray publicly for a certain candidate to win the election. The church preaches that scriptures teaches us as disciples how to live in this broken world and honor to Christ so sermons can address the sins of the culture, such as the sin of abortion. But the church cannot tell Christians how to vote. The General Assembly does not pass motions to speak to the U.S. Congress on political or cultural issues. A Christian, as an individual, can and should vote and, yes, should speak to the government as a citizen, but the church as an institution, as the kingdom of Christ, does not, cannot speak to the government unless it's by appeal that the rights of the church are being violated or that the Christian church is being required to sin by a particular law. The church must remain the church, and the state is the state, and they do not interfere with each other. And we owe that to American Presbyterians that wrote that into the confession. With that, then, we can look at the description of Christian duties to civil leaders. And this is very pastoral. Remember that the original Westminster Confession was being written during a civil war. And thousands of Reformed believers had been killed for conscience that the state was forcing them to renounce Scripture. And in that context, they write, here's the duty of a believer to a government. First of all, to pray. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. How do you pray for the civil rulers? Pray according to Psalm 82.3, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. 
Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Do you pray for Christians in leadership? Pray for John Stuber and town council. Pray for Christians that you know in governments and courts. Pray for the legal defense organizations. Pray. Make it a matter of your personal prayers and public prayers. Secondly, we're called to honor. First Peter 2.17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We should respect and honor. Not always easy to honor a leader that you don't respect. But still, the fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. You must find a way to honor even when you don't like or don't respect the person. Honor. Third, pay taxes from Romans 13.5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Do you think tax monies were well spent in the Roman Empire? No. Tax monies in the Roman Empire were often given to sinful things. But Christians as citizens were required to pay them. And so we get permits when they're required. We don't pay employees under the table with cash. We file the taxes truthfully, pay the taxes and to obey lawful commands. Romans 13.5, one must be in subjection. Titus 3.1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. It's lawful commands. And there's a nuance that's important, that our government is a constitutional republic, which means that our final authority as citizens is a piece of paper. It's the Constitution, not to the elected official who takes oaths to uphold the Constitution. So there is a difference between our government and the Roman emperor or any other dictator. Our lawful commands are tied to a Constitution. Where they're lawful, we are to obey and we're to watch our consciences that we don't get accustomed to disobedience. There's a qualification on our duties There's a description of our duties and what's the result of our duties. There's two. Christians are going to be both the best of citizens and they're they're going to be the worst of citizens. I think that was Luther who put it that way. Christians will be the best of citizens because we obey without a police officer telling us to obey. We have God calling us to obey and so we are going to be citizens who obey the speed limits and pay taxes honestly and speak well of and pray for leaders. And we're going to do that without being coerced to do it. As Jesus did not disrespect Pilate. John Calvin said, we're not only subject to the authorities of princes who perform their office toward us uprightly and faithfully as they ought, but also to the authorities of all who, by whatever means, have got control of affairs, even though they perform not a whit of the prince's office, even a bad ruler, we still fulfill our duties. We're going to be the best of citizens.
And so by extension, we have to watch against a spirit of disobedience. We have to watch that we don't get pressed into, by the world into its way of thinking. And the sign of an unbelieving age is going to be disobedience to parents. Romans 1.30, God gives over to the depraved mind and the description they're going to be haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. 2 Timothy 3, but realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents and ungrateful and unholy. Not the believer. We're to respect all in authority. That includes being at a basketball game and the fans disagree with the referee's call. They're not going to be calling Obscenities at him and screaming at him. Children do not mouth off to teachers. Citizens arguing with judges in a courtroom. I never thought I would see the day when a Supreme Court justice would show up to give a speech and to have the crowd heckling. A Supreme Court justice. Or jokes about the president on Facebook. Watch that you're not offended, that are not affected by this. And watch that you don't get pressed into a, a spirit of disobedience. Christians are to be the best of citizens. And we are also to be the worst of citizens. Just like a, a pebble can get into your shoe or a tiny bit of sand can get into your eye and it irritates your whole body. It's out of proportion to the size of the body, a little piece of sand in the eye, but the whole body is in pain. So the Christian is called to be salt and light and we are to speak the truth when the government is calling us to sin. We're to call them to God's truth. We rejoice in the separation of church and state, that the state is not to interfere with the church and the church is not to interfere with the state. We rejoice in that. But that does not mean that the state is free from God. And when the state endorses ungodliness, then believers as individuals, not the church as a church, but believers as individuals, you have the right and the duty to be salt and light, it means that you cannot be silent when you see a civil ruler does wrong. Jesus spoke directly to Pilate that what he did was wrong and someday he would give an account to God for it and that's your rule. We speak on the basis of God's moral law written upon the heart of all people. We remind governors that they are to give an account to God Christians are accountable to speak up when the ruler does wrong. You're to be the pebble in the shoe. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn said at the occasion of receiving the Templeton Prize in reference to the evils that he had seen in the Soviet Union and the evils in the West as well, he wrote, these things have happened to us because we have forgotten God. You cannot be silent when you see the believer is doing, the ruler is doing wrong. And then secondly, the believers are to work for just laws. One way that we love our neighbor is to work for just laws, which means at times maneuvering for political power. Yes, these are about temporal power, but it's legitimate calling for Christians. It's not honorable to sit back and do nothing but complain about how bad the government's getting and not praying and looking for ways that we could step forward and make changes or work for just laws. 
Make, your, make yourself aware of where Christians are working for legal defense and are making appeals and are making efforts of making more just laws. For example, the Rutherford Institute or the Christian Legal Defense. Make yourself informed. Pray, support. Believers are to work for just laws as citizens in this country. Believers then depend upon moral persuasion you ask God to bless our reasoning, which first of all means, do you know how to reason? Do you know how to educate yourself on explaining the issues to people from different points of view? The honorable way is to discuss in truth the difference and pray that God gives understanding to truth. Os Guinness says, in church and in the public square, contend for Christian principles and biblical truth through principled persuasion. Our goal is to convince our neighbors, those that we love, of the truth. It's not to annihilate, not to demonize. You don't call Christians to political action, warning and threatening them. If you don't, we're going to turn, turn the country. We're going to seize control. You don't, we don't uh, depend upon coercion and economic boycott and media hype. We're called to speak the truth in love, to persuade if we give in to the urge to use image over argument, appeal to inflamed passions over spirit-led discernment of truth, then we confirm the Washington Post's critique of the fundamental and evangelical Christian community as poor, uneducated, and easy to command. Lel Arrington. We're to be the worst of citizens at times, to be the pebble in the shoe, we cannot be silent when we see wrong. We're to work for just laws. We depend on moral persuasion. And then fourth, we are to persevere. Micah 6, 8, act justly. He's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Do justice over a period of time. Resist cynicism that there'll never be justice. You persevere without getting tired. Our responsibility is to act justly, work for it, pray for it, however long it takes. Even though the process is slow, even though it's seemingly not existence, Christians dig in for the long haul in the citizens where God has placed us. It took decades to bring about the abolition of slavery, to end abuses in industry, to establish civil rights, to end Roe v. Wade. Persevere. Civil office is legitimate for Christians. It's limited by God and is to be honored by Christians. May God cause us all to be godly citizens in both kingdoms, the church and country. And may God cause us to be the best of citizens and when appropriate, saying the truth and love to be the worst of citizens. So we pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we look at these principles giving thanks for the, the shoulders that we stand on of prior generations that have thought through these issues hard and we reap the benefit from them. We are so grateful.
We are aware that every generation has to apply these issues, and we pray for our elders our, in our denomination and in like denominations that you'd continue to give them great wisdom as we see the government more and more overreaching and becoming hostile to the Christian church. May we know that balance of being citizens in both kingdoms, knowing how to honor Christ in both. And thank you that Jesus Christ is now presently ruling over the kings of the earth. He will bring all things into subjection to him. And we thank you, our Father, that the church of Jesus Christ will outlast them all. Thank you for these truths. Thank you that we come now to the table and for the assurance that our Savior is with us, that he has died for our sins, that he has forgiven all of his people, all of their sins. Draw us to the table in faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.